All right, uh, great to be here. Glad to have you all. My name is Pip. That's, my, that's my, actually my name, I'm sorry. Uh, we are going to be continuing in 1 Peter. So if you want to open up your Bibles to 1 Peter 4, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you in the pew. Um, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 19. And I'm going to read it, and then we're going to pray. We're actually going back a little bit. Josh covered seven and, uh, verses 7 and 8 last week, but we're going to kind of pick it up right there because I think it's a really good, really sets a tone for the rest of the passage we're going to read, so it should be good. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Lord, I just want to thank you that you are here with us, that we get to gather freely. Thank you that each and every person sitting in the pews right now, Lord, is not, a, not just by pure happenstance that they're here, but Lord, you love them. You love each of us. And I just pray that uh, as I speak, Lord, that you would just let particular things come, come and kind of prick people's hearts, encourage them where they need to be encouraged, convict them where they need to be convicted. Lord, lift us up, draw us closer to you. Um, yeah, Lord, we just pray that you would use this time. We thank you for your word and thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, the last time I was up here, we talked about uh, how there's a lot of different stories competing for our allegiance. Uh, both stories within us that we feel kind of internal pull, and then tons of stories outside us, especially in a city like Portland. And those aren't just stories of how to interpret our particular lives, but they're actually grander stories about like how to interpret human history, period. Uh, even just the kind of question, what is human history? Is it just kind of a cyclical thing? Civilizations rise and fall, the same stuff keeps happening over and over. Is it just a dismal story of a bunch of sophisticated, sophisticated animals just kind of hurting each other over and over again? Is it the story of inevitable progress forward to like a glorious utopia? And the other question is like, where are we in the story? And scripture actually tells us the true story of the world. And it tells us where we are in that story. But remember, reality may not be what you think it is. Reality may not be what you think it is. You know, in many ways, uh, I think of the fall, which is to say the entrance of sin into the world, I think of it kind of like a nuclear bomb going off. Nuclear bomb goes off and the whole world is like affected by that. The whole, we're kind of living in the ruins of that. And we're all, you know, if you think of, if you think of reality as, which 
I'm prone to think of it like this, as kind of like a dystopian sci-fi film, right? We're all kind of mutants, like, living in the ruins. We've all been affected by sin, by this, like, this sundering of our relationship with God. It's affected all of us. And honestly, we don't really understand what the world was like. We don't have a clear look on what the world was like before that blast. We don't have a clear understanding of who we are now or where we're going. We need someone to tell us who we are and what's actually happening and what we should do. But it may surprise us because we're not necessarily used to thinking clearly. We're not used to seeing the big picture. And there are so many voices telling us what the big picture actually is. But we need to hear what scripture says. So verse 7 right here, it says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So right there, Scripture is telling us where we are in the story. And biblically speaking, these are the last times. It says the end of all things is at hand. So in the Bible, we see that the story is headed towards a beautiful ending. And that ending is really just a beginning. And that's Jesus coming back to reclaim his world, to bring healing, to bring a new heavens and a new earth. Now, when you hear that, the, la- the phrase of last times, like, maybe you, like, tense up because you think I'm going to, like, tell you a specific date of Christ's return, which, don't worry, I'm not going to do that. It's not a good idea. Um, or start unpacking exactly how the world stage is going to play out or, like, geopolitics and stuff. I'm not going to do any of that. Um, the phrase last times, actually, like, here's one, how one theologian, a theologian, theologian, we'll go with it, a uh, theologian said, He said, it's a reference to the period inaugurated by the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ and extending until his return at the close of history. So biblically biblically speaking, we are living in the messianic age. The Messiah, Jesus, has come, and now we're waiting for his return to bring about that beautiful conclusion we all long for. Right at the start of Hebrews, it says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So biblically speaking, it has been the last days since Jesus actually, his time on earth, about 2,000 years ago. And there's an end to the darkness of history coming, and that end will be very good. Uh, James 5.8 says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So you might hear that, and you think, yeah, but like, 2,000 years, like, where is he? Everything is kind of going as it's always been going. And actually, Peter, in the uh, follow-up to this, Second Peter, the sequel, if you will, uh, he actually addresses that very objection. Says, like, well, somebody might say, like, things are continuing as they always have. Where is he? And Peter actually says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years as one day. The Lord is not snow, slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So Peter's directly addressing that, and he's saying, one, God looks at time, sees the timeline differently than we do. We may be sitting here thinking, well, it's been 2,000 years. Shouldn't, shouldn't this have Jesus come back already? And Peter's saying, like, one, God is approaching time differently, and explicitly, he's, like, linking this. He's saying God is being patient. He wants everybody to come know him. He desires all people to come to know him. So his patience is actually kindness. Nonetheless, we are in the last times. Now, whenever, people, whenever there's revival or whenever just like people meet Jesus and get excited, there's like a healthy expectation that comes with it of Christ's imminent return. But that expectation can turn toxic when people decide, I'm going to quit my job and just kind of hole up and wait for him to come back. And Paul actually explicitly says, explicitly says do not do that. He says, don't quit your job and check out. 
The takeaway here is not to like go hide out in your house because Jesus is coming back at any moment. The takeaway is like to be faithful where we are, where we're supposed to go out, preach the gospel, love people, live lives that reflect who Jesus is, and rejoice knowing that he is going to return and bring about judgment, redemption, the world we long for. And actually, Peter follows it right, right here. He says, since the end is at hand, we're told to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Self-controlled and sober-minded. You know, I think that phrase, being sober-minded, and I think the opposite of that, intoxication, that's a very good word for the way the world tries to forget, get us to forget the reality of who Jesus is and where we are in the story, what history's heading towards. Because the world tries to seduce us into finding our hope and our own pleasure, in a particular lifestyle, in success, in our bank account. There's like so many narratives competing in this, this city. So many narratives, whether that's like a progressive nar- narrative of like we're moving towards this utopia, human beings are going to figure it all out, or a super pessimistic narrative. Whatever it is, there's so many narratives competing. And actually, as I was, as I was kind of thinking on this and preparing, uh, I thought of this specific... Uh, Maybe it's a little bit of an obscure reference, but I'll give some background. But I thought of a specific film, this film, Akira Kurosawa's Dreams, which one of my favorite directors, Japanese director. Uh, and there's this scene, there's like this, uh, it's like a series of dreams he ostensibly had. And there's this one dream uh, where he is, it's showing him as a mountaineer, because he was like into mountaineering at one point. So it's this guy, a bunch of them are like going through a mountain during a snowstorm. And snowstorm's like, huge, it's like really big, like they're just, it's like almost blinding white, and they're just kind of trudging along, they've clearly been trudging for a very long time, and they can't find their base camp, but the blizzard is just like all around them, so they're trudging, and it's, they're just starting to be like, oh, and it feels like that part of the film is like a half hour, it's probably five minutes, but it feels like forever, they're kind of in slow motion, they're just trudging, they're, you know, their beards are frosted over, um, trudging along, can't find the base camp, and then finally, the guys just start to give up. Like, they're just like, lie down in the snow. And the one leader, he's like, no, we gotta keep going. Like, he tries to get him to like, not, not give up, but everybody's giving up. And eventually he gives up, and you see him like, lie down in the snow. And then all the sound of the blizzard, just like the whooshing and everything, it goes away. And it's very silent. And then the, he hears this eerie, like, beautiful uh, singing voice. Just a woman singing this like, beautiful, eerie melody. And then, uh, these hands appear and there's a woman like putting blankets on him, blankets of snow as he's lying there. And he looks up and there's like a woman there dressed in like, like traditional Japanese costume, like flowing robes. And she's like kind of like an ice maiden, like an ice princess. And she's putting these like, uh, these blankets on him. And he's kind of like, you know, oh, what? And she says, and like they put a weird modulation on her voice. She goes, the snow is warm. And she's putting it on him. He's like, oh. Oh, the ice is hot. And he's kind of like, oh, he's kind of fighting it, fighting it, and he's just kind of, oh, and this beautiful melody is going on. And he's, hypothermia is overtaking him. He's dying. He's about to give up and just, like, die there in the snow. And then he finally, like, kind of, like, rallies and, like, pushes her away, and then her face, like, turns into a monster, like, this horrible, like, just hideous, disfigured, and you realize, oh, she's not, she's not his friend. She's, she's real bad. And she, like, flies away in the snow, and she, like, disappears, and then he, like, gets up, he wakes up his buddies, and then their, ice camp, their base camp was actually right there the whole time, just hidden by the ice. So they died, like, they would have died like five feet away from it. But, and they say, they find it, there's happy music, the storm clears, beautiful ending. Uh, but the reason I think of that specifically is because it's so interesting, like, narratives, all these narratives out there, narratives that'll actually, like, take us away from Jesus, narratives that'll kill us, like, 
destructive, dark narratives, they can feel in the moment so seductive. It's like having those blankets pulled over you, like, ah, the ice is hot, you know? <laughs> Good is bad. Good is bad. And there's a lot of that going on in our city and in our world. So many different narratives, so many different flavors of narrative that can pull us away from the Lord. But we got to keep our eyes on Jesus. We got to remember the story we're a part of. We got to remember reality. So, uh, it's interesting to think Peter was uh, writing this at a time when the dominant culture, dominant uh, world culture then, at least in that particular part of the world, was Roman. A heathen culture, a culture in which they like, actually like, honored the emperor ostensibly as divine, in which there are like, temples all over the place, right? Pointing to false gods, gods who are not actually God. It's a heathen cu- culture, and ours is too in so many ways. In so many ways. Walking around Portland, it's not hard to see that. So we're called to be wise and self-controlled and sober, recalling just what reality is instead of getting drunk on any number of narratives that pull us. So, right now, you maybe feel a particular pull. Some people feel a pull towards like, oh, a progressive vision of the world in which people are actually basically good and getting better and better and we just got to get on board for that. Or a pessimistic vision of the world in which like, ah, this... This world's going down the tubes, so I just kind of got to, like, lock, you know, head home, get some guns, and, like, protect myself and my family because this whole place is going down the tubes, and what matters is taking care of me and mine. Or maybe you're tempted towards, like, a form of nihilism, just, like, thinking, ah, the world's kind of just a meat grinder. All of those are lies. All of those are lies. And if you wed your fate, if you bind yourself to the current age, it's like putting all your investments into a company that is bound to tank. It's not a matter of if it's going to tank, it is definitely going to tank. Definitely going to tank. So a command that comes up again and again in the New Testament is be watchful. Keep an eye on yourself, on what you're being pulled towards. Remember the story you're in. And we all feel those pulls in different ways, but we're all here to continue, continually remember who is king, who loves us, what we're here for. And it's interesting that we're told here to be self-controlled. Self-control is a part of the Christian life. And there's like this narrative out there um, very popular in our society. I've noticed in a lot of like films and TV shows, especially lately, to, of just like the way to find the answer to life or like a happy life is to look deep inside of you and whatever you find there, like in your deepest, what feels like the deepest part of you, to just follow that. Follow your passions, whatever that is. And there's this idea that like restraining your passions or choosing not to give in to whatever desire is toxic. Um, it's kind of a Freudian idea in many ways, but like the truth of the matter is everybody restrains their passions. Everybody do, does. We choose which passions to give into. We choose which passions to follow. You can't hold down a job without a degree of self-control because all of us, no matter how great your job, we're all going to have times where, like, you're probably going to ba- want to bounce or not even show up to work, you know, just, or in the middle of a meeting, just say, hey, Frank, where are you going? Like, I'm done. I'm, I'm out. And then you come back Monday like, hey, <laughs> oops. <laughs> That's a Seinfeld episode. Um... But uh, you can't have long-term relationships with people, with family, friends, or anybody without restraining your passions to some degree because everybody has times that being with other people is not fun, that you just want to run away or just tell somebody off or bounce or whatever it is. We all order our passions according to what matters most to us, according to what our goals are. And so the Lord calls us to order our passions rightly in a way that honors him as king. So it's not self-control just for the sake of self-control, like, like kind of a stoic self-mastery, like 
I desire nothing, I have no feelings, I'm immune to emotion. That's not what we're called to. And it's not about despising the pleasure of God's good gifts. Rather, it's about resisting sin and curbing the passions that lead us away to God, from God and like nursing, like feeding, like focusing on our passion that leads us to God and to good things the way he created them. So uh, the queen, as you know, died the other week. And I realized for the first time, so I'm actually, so I have Australian citizenship as well as American citizenship. And I realized for the first time, just sitting up there in my office while I was just like reading about the queen dying, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm a subject of the crown. Which is weird, <laughs> weird to realize. Um, hope that doesn't upset anybody. Uh, so I realized I am technically the subject of King Charles III, uh, which is wild to realize. Um, and so I'm just gonna talk about him for half, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> But thinking about that, I was thinking, we all here, everybody believes in Jesus, has, ident- like, has given their life to him. We are subjects of a king. And, you know, we cannot think about that. We're in America. We don't, you know, we're like historically not a big fan of kings, you know. But the truth is we are all subjects of a king here. And that king, King Jesus, he's the one who gets to decide how we live our lives, how do we order our passions rightly. And he is a good king. He's a king who has our best interests in mind. He's not a king who's just kind of like, you know, sitting up on a throne, just like lording it over you and just like, yeah, you come over here, peon. That's not our king. Our king, not that King Charles is doing that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Uh, no, I'm not going to say that about him. I recant. Um, but Jesus is a good king who has our interests in mind. And that king, he's coming back to a, a, visibly assert his rule of the earth. And so saying the end of all things is at hand and saying to be self-controlled and sober-minded, that's not a statement of like pessimism or like a dark, well, it's all, it's all going to be toast, so don't care about any of it. That's not what it's saying. It's saying the greatest hope this world could ever have is coming. The end of evil is at hand, a new heavens and a new earth. We have here, it says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So that phrase, loving one another, one translation reads, keep your love for one another at full strength, at full strength. You know, it can be tempting to pull back from loving people if you've been hurt in whatever way you've been hurt, but love fervently. That's what Jesus did. You know, it's fascinating to think, even when people failed Jesus, he loved them. Peter himself, who's writing this, he denied Jesus three times right after saying he would never forsake him. And Jesus continued to love him. Love covers a multitude of sin. Proverbs 10 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And Proverbs 19, 11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is, his, it is his glory to overlook an offense. It is a great honor to forgive, to forgive people, to overlook an offense. It's a sign of a mature, stable, generous heart to forgive without bitterness, to overlook an offense, not out of passive fear, like out of a fear of confrontation, but out of active love because your identity is securely rooted. And again and again and again, Jesus tells us to love one another. He says that all people would know we're his disciples by our love for one another. And then when you think of that phrase, love covering a multitude of sins, is that not a picture of what Jesus did for us? His love led him to pay the price for your sins for mine on the cross rising and bringing about forgiveness for everything we've committed against him. Because every sin, whether it's against other people, against ourselves, ultimately it's against God. He's ultimately the offended party. Um, But he, he comes to forgive. 
and to invite us into eternal life. And we emulate that forgiveness in, a, in, a, on, in the scale of our own lives when we forgive and show grace to others. You know, it can feel easy to forgive a small trespass for a, by a stranger, you know, like somebody cuts you off in, in traffic, you can be like, ah, who cares? Though sometimes, sometimes you're like, oh, I care. I care very much. I've caught myself, you know, somebody does something silly in traffic and then the whole rest of my drive, I'm thinking about it, thinking like, do they have any idea who I am? No, I don't think like that. But in any case, generally speaking, it can be easy to forgive people who we don't know for small trespasses. But man, someone closer, a coworker, a friend, a spouse, a parent, a child, it feels harder then. When somebody hurts you like that, it's like, oof, that is close to home. And it can feel hard to forgive in that moment. It can feel like my strength is not enough to forgive. And the answer isn't to look to my own willpower, to my own strength. It's to look to Jesus because he has forgiven us. In the Lord's Prayer, he actually says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So forgiving others there is linked to the forgiveness we've received. So when you have a situation you need to forgive and it feels hard, or just in general, any situation where you need to forgive, look to Jesus. Rely on his Spirit's power to enable you to forgive others, to release it. Because those who have been forgiven much, love much. If we realize how much we've been forgiven, that enables us to forgive others. So other ways we love one another, hospitality and using our gifts. So it says here, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And I love that phrase, without grumbling. It just reminds you that, yeah, this was written about 2,000 years ago. And it just reminds me how human beings are the same throughout the, the, the ages, you know? how tempting it is to grumble. Have you, ever, like, have you ever noticed how just if you get a bunch of coworkers together, like it seems like an easy default way to connect is just to complain. Like never underestimate the human propensity of whining about something. <laughs> but we're to do it without grumbling. Realizing, as we kind of realize the story, realize how much we've been forgiven, realizing the reality of things. And then hospitality. You know, hospitality in many ways is like, feels like a forgotten virtue in the West but it is an incredible one. It's so clearly like, vital in the Bible. You think of the story of Abraham and Lot who like, show hospitality to angels. They aren't aware that they're angels. And Rahab who shows like, hospitality to um, Israelite spies like coming in to spy out the land. So the, those stories like, highlight how important hospitality is. Hebrews 13 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Hospitality is very important in the Bible, and it's very important to us, like for us. We're called to it, and many cultures still value it, though ours doesn't in a lot of ways. It is not an antiquated notion. It's a kingdom notion. It's an eternal notion, and it's huge to think about showing hospitality to someone, inviting them into your home or your apartment, welcoming them with, with warmth. It is a lonely world out there in so many ways, and inviting someone in is a radical act. Even if it's just the hospitality of like after church, inviting somebody out to lunch. It doesn't even need to be like inviting to your home, but showing people welcome and warmth and invitation. Our homes, our lives, our apartments, they're supposed to be, the, and we've talked about this before, and this is just one of the themes I love to like harp on, is thinking of our homes as embassies of the kingdom. And inviting someone in is like a microcosmic way of saying, here's a glimpse of what Jesus' kingdom looks like. Here's a glimpse of what the world will look like when we live in a new heavens and a new earth and all things are set right. Here's what a place of love and grace and forgiveness and repentance and truth and kindness and gentleness and humility and patience and self-control is like. 
It's an opportunity to be creative also because, in a sense, you're fostering a countercultural vision. You're embodying a different way of living than the way that's all around you. It's saying a different world is possible. This is what it looks like when a home is controlled by the Spirit of Jesus. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Absolutely not. But it means that a home where you, you repent when you sin, you continue to press on to Jesus, you welcome people in, you love, you're generous. Being generous with what we have, including like our finances, our time, that doesn't mean we need to be rich or wait until we feel like we have a huge amount of margin with our time or, or our money, but it does mean looking at what we have, laying it before the Lord, and seeing it all as His, and then considering how we can bless others with what we have. Uh, I read this quote by Robert Layton, who's like a 17th century preacher, and he said, a large heart with a small amount of money will do a great deal with cheerfulness while hearts glued to the poor riches they possess, or rather are possessed by, can scarce part with anything until it is pulled by them. And I love that. A heart glued to the poor riches they possessed or are possessed by. It's like a slight little burn as he's, he's making a point. But being hospitable, being generous, that's an exciting, that's a creative opportunity. And it's part of our calling as Christians. So maybe as, as I'm talking, there's like things that come to mind for you, like, oh, what would that look like? Think about it, like make a little note to yourself. Spend some time to ponder, how can I be hospitable? How can I be generous with what I have? How can I invite people in? Verse 10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. So. Speaking and serving. Now, there's a variety of spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament, and many of them, much of them, can actually just be summarized into these two categories, speaking and serving. Whether that's talking about teaching or prophecy or tongues or healing or administration or evangelism or exhortation, all of it can be summarized in many ways in speaking and serving. It says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So we all have gifts as Christians, and we're supposed to use those gifts in a way that glorifies God, not ourselves. Don't do it on your own strength, but do it on the strength that he supplies for him and for others, to bless others. And you know, it's interesting, like, thinking of being called into ministry. Now, when you hear that phrase, you can think like, oh, meaning like vocational ministry, like getting paid to be a pastor or an administrator or whatever it is. But actually, we're all called to ministry. Vocational ministry, like, like my particular job, like getting paid for it, that is a historical and like a global anomaly. It is a blessing, I'm very grateful for it, but that's an anomaly. But being called into ministry is something we're all called to do, all of us. We're all in the same boat and we all have ways to serve. And church is not like an entertainment event or like an event you attend, but we actually need one another. Like if you're sitting here and you consider yourself a Christian, you're like, part of the church, we need you to contribute. I need you to contribute. Like, we're a body. We need all the parts of the body to be working. Community isn't just about receiving. It's about giving, too. So think about that. Like, what are ways the Lord has called me, has put things in my life, to share with others? And, you know, sometimes we can be tempted to feel like, ah, oh, what do I have to give? Like, I feel kind of impoverished. But the truth of the matter is, you can encourage people. You can bless people in ways you may not even realize. And obviously there's things like specific ministries in the church serving and stuff, but like we're all called to bless one another. And you have more to give than you realize because if you're a Christian, the Spirit of God is in you and he's called you to bless others. And you're going to be a blessing even just in ways you don't realize, just by showing up and loving people. Um, so 
the purpose of all of this, the purpose of our, the goal of our serving, our hospitality, our loving one another, it's seen in verse 11, where it says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, the lang- don't get thrown off. I just want to say real quick, side note, don't get thrown off the language of God in the New Testament. So it says here, God, uh, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. It's not saying that Jesus isn't also God, but it's specifically, sometimes the Bible uses a phrase God, referring to God the Father. So the Bible clearly testifies to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So just remember, sometimes you have to like, think about things with some nuance there. Oh, God in that particular context, God the Father, and Jesus is also God. So just a side note, but everything, point here, everything belongs to God. To him belong glory and dominion forever. He is God. He's the king. We are not. And he's in control of everything. Everything's actually for him. And you may hear that and think like, oh, but like, what about me? Or like, you know, I kind of want to be God. You know, there can be that pull in, in ways, but actually we get to be his children and no child's left behind. And that is very sweet. Like, it's a good thing that we are not in control, that he's actually the king. This is his church, and he calls us to, he equips us to speak and serve to one another by his spirit, through his power, for his purpose. Now, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So one quick note here I love that he starts it off with beloved, or one translation says dear friends. Just a reminder to me, like, this letter, the Bible in general, but this letter is not like some cold instruction manual, like here's a bunch of stuff you should do, but it's filled with love and warmth. And it's so sweet to think Peter's writing this to specific people, but it's, it's for us too. It's for us too, and there's just, it just oozes warmth. Uh, that phrase, the fiery trial, specifically that calls to mind for me like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, in the book of Daniel. And they were uh, Jewish men who were exiled to Babylon and they refused to show worship to a false idol and they were thrown into a fiery furnace as a punishment, but the Lord preserved them. And actually they they came out unscathed. Uh, Their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. And we too, in a sense, are exiles. Remember Peter is speaking here Uh, two people who are specifically actually exiled, as we talked about a few weeks ago. But all of us, we are exiles in one sense. This world, uh, the way the world currently is, the world system, as it were, this is not our home. We are exiles. Persecution, which it talks about here, that's an honor. And that sounds so countercultural, kind of counterintuitive in ways, but it's very clear in Scripture and throughout Christian history. Uh, And I just want to, like, have just two extended quotes from Jesus himself talking about this. In Matthew, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then in John, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they did, do not know him who sent me. Jesus is very realistic 
about the realities of what we may experience in, in this life. Persecution may look differently. We'll experience different things and different sectors of people, of Christians throughout history. They're going to experience different levels and like uh, kinds of persecution or suffering for Christ's name. But Jesus is very clear here. And it's good to continue to remind us because it's not something pleasant to think about, but it's real. And when you go through persecution, know that you are in the best company possible. Peter, who's writing this book, he, or this letter, he knows. He knows firsthand. So just going to kind of jump back into his story quickly. So this is Peter. He denied Jesus three times. And then when, G- when Jesus was resurrected, he actually reinstated Peter. And he actually told Peter the kind of death he would die. Uh, in John 21, there's a scene where Jesus tells Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show but to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So tradition actually, this is not clear in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say exactly how Peter died, but in Christian tradition, it's believed that that Peter uh, was actually, he was killed during Emperor Nero's reign. Uh, The Emperor Nero apparently, like like Roman historian uh, Tacitus says that Nero, like there was the fire, this huge fire that like gutted Rome and Nero blamed it on Christians. And there was a big persecution at that time. But uh, Christian tradition says that Peter was actually crucified at that point. And he actually asked to be crucified upside down because he viewed himself as like unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus. So crucified upside down. So Peter is not talking about this theoretically and never really experienced hardship. This is like stuff that applied directly to Peter's own life. And actually even like in Acts 5, just to take one chapter... Out. And I would highly recommend just like picking it up and reading it. It's, it's, I mean, all of Acts, obviously, but like an amazing particular chapter. Because as a scene where Peter and some other Christians, some other apostles, are preaching the gospel and people are being healed, the Lord's healing people. And then he and the, the apostles, they get arrested, they're put into jail, into a public prison. And at night, an angel comes, open the doors, and tells them to go speak all the words of this life in the temple. And so they go at daybreak, they go to the temple, and they start preaching, preaching the gospel. And when the high priest, who was one of those responsible for throwing Peter in jail, when the high priest looks for them, uh, like, can't find them in jail, and so in the end, like, they actually find them, oh, they're preaching the temple. So they get them, drag them before this council, and the council want to kill them, but somebody intervenes, like, oh, let's, don't kill them, because it could be actually God you're resisting. And the council decides, like, decides, okay, you're right, we won't kill them, but they do beat them, and then they let them free, and then say, don't tell, don't preach about Jesus. And of course, they're going to preach about Jesus. Uh, and it says right at the end of that narrative, it says, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So just, they just noticed that they got, they were like released from, a pr- from prison by an angel. So clearly the Lord's work and then tells them to preach the gospel some more. They t- preach the gospel some more. The council drags them before him and then they beat them. So it's just like a side note there. They were beaten and then released and they celebrate. They rejoice. They rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So actually what the world sees as dishonorable as shame, like you're a Christian, you're going to get persecuted, you're going to get beaten for it. They view it as, that's a mark of honor. That's a mark of high honor. honor. Martyrdom for the early church was viewed like in just such high esteem. And so true for Christians throughout the centuries, including where people are being like persecuted on that level and martyred today. It's a high honor and call, calling. And remember that when you're experiencing suffering, when you're experiencing hardship, remember that is a high honor 
and calling, and it, that can feel hard to get your, your brain around, but like think of Jesus, think of like the pattern of his life. Our suffering has great purpose. It says here, uh, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So when it says participating in Christ's sufferings, it's not saying you're like redeeming yourself through your suffering or you're paying again for your sins or anything like that because the sins of Christians are dealt once and for all on the cross by Jesus. But we do experience hardship and when we suffer as Christians, we are in some sense sharing in Christ's sufferings. We are in very good company when we suffer for doing what's right. And that pattern of Jesus' life, that's a pattern for our own, that suffering will lead to rejoicing and victory. Suffering will lead to rejoicing and victory. Think about that now for your own life, if you are in a time of suffering. If you're suffering and you're holding on to Jesus, he sees that. Even as I'm talking right now, he, I don't know the specifics of what you're going through, but he does. And once you know that if you are suffering, as doing the right thing as a Christian, like, he sees that. And he's going to bring good out of that. You can rely on that. That's like a promise you can bank on. And suffering will be over soon. But... Verse 15 says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So suffer for God, not for your own like evil choices. You know, uh, it says in, earlier in First Peter, he says like, what credit is it if you sin and get beaten for it, you endure. But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. That is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So you don't get to say I'm persecuted if you like, you know, you shoplift, blow up somebody's car, and you say, like, oh, I'm being persecuted when you get in trouble for it. No, 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 that's not how it works. And I love how it says, it talks about, like, okay, murder, thievery, evil doing, and then it says, as a meddler. And uh, King James says, a busybody in other men's matters. So you don't get to call it persecution if you're just, like, being a jerk and messing with other people's lives like that. That's not persecution, okay? So... Um, verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And then going on, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And something I want to point out here, firstly, is we're called the household of God, right there in verse 17. And what an honor that is. Don't just like, it can be tempting to just gloss over that and keep going. But thinking about that, we are called, in scripture, we're called God's temple, called God's family. And just think about that. The Lord, if we're his household, he's going to take care of us. So even though these verses are talking about judgment and suffering, remember that this is saying that like, you're part of God's household. You're precious to him. We're his children and he loves us. Now, I've read some kind of different takes, some just kind of nuanced take, takes on what exactly uh, this passage is, is saying, whether it's like talking about household uh, um, judgment beginning of the household of God, whether it's saying specifically like when persecution, when judgment comes on the world in general, it starts with a church. What, like, what exactly it's meaning in terms of purification, or is it Christians being disciplined for sin? Um, or it's just talking about suffering in general. And we do know, regardless, that uh, discipline does happen for Christians, but we are uh, secure in our identity in identity in Christ as we cling to him, he will deal with our sins and he does deal with sin in the church, but it's for good. It says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's, that's in 1 Corinthians. And that phrase, scarcely saved. Now that's not intended to give you the idea that like, oh, salvation rests on a shaky foundation. Not at all. The foundation of our salvation 
uh, is the most secure foundation possible because it rests on the finished work of what Jesus did on the cross. Scripture says that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. And Hebrews says we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So commentators, general take is that scarcely saved refers to the reality that being a Christian involves hardship in this life. We've got to cling to Christ in the midst of obstacles and persecutions, temptation and suffering. The Christian life, to be very clear, is not an easy one, but it is a good one. And Jesus' yoke, that is light and easy. So some, there's like one, some translations of this in the Greek that have it say, actually, to be saved with difficulty instead of scarcely saved. And that would line up with that interpretation. Now, you can dig deeper on that, but regardless, we know that suffering will come. We can trust our Lord in the midst of it. And the force of the questions that Peter is quos- opposing here, that's unambiguous. It says very clearly, if the righteous experience like suffering, judgment, pur- purification, how grim is judgment for those who reject Jesus? And if we are saved through difficulty in Jesus, what is the destiny of those who reject that offer of salvation? Because remember verse seven at the very start of this, the end of all things is at hand. Ultimate judgment is coming for everyone. And if you reject Jesus, all that's left is a darkness of judgment for you, for your sins, because you've rejected the only way to receive forgiveness. Jesus said he is the only way, the only way. So if you're rejecting Jesus, this is, may be a hard thing to hear, but you're actually choosing the side of evil, the side that is gonna experience defeat and eternal punishment. And that's sobering, like feel the force of that. The Lord doesn't want you to be condemned. The whole point, he's, he's like calling you to himself, to rest in the security of being forgiven and beloved and welcomed in him. You know, I just had this moment this week, I picked up my little boy from preschool and we're driving on 122nd, beautiful 122nd, and uh, I turned to the right and I just saw this guy like walking down the street. Uh, and I don't know anything about this guy or what he was thinking. He didn't look very happy, but I was just looking at him and I was thinking how much I love my little boy, Finn. And then I was thinking about this particular man, how the Lord had seen, the way I've seen Finn since he was like born, since he was a baby and seen him growing. I've seen the Lord has seen this man his entire life since he was a baby. And the Lord loves him way more than I love my little boy. Just thinking about how much the Lord loves us and how much the Lord loves you sitting in that seat. Like, he loved you before you even knew you were a you, you know? Like, he loved you just from the moment you're conceived, seeing your whole life. He loves you, and he's calling you to himself, and you can trust him. He will take care of you. When he appears, when Jesus comes back, that will be rejoicing for those who love him, and great sorrow for those who don't. That's really scary. In Matthew 24, there's this line that says, I remember like where I was actually when I was reading this, I was like working at Starbucks in college and had like, uh, and I hated working there so much. <laughs> I have this specific memory, this is so pitiful. I have this specific memory of driving to work on a Saturday night and crying because I was like, I hate my job. <laughs> if you work at Starbucks, that's not a knock on Starbucks. That's a knock on me, I guess. Um, but I remember specifically like sitting there on my break reading one of those like little Gideon's Bibles and in Matthew 24, there's this line that says that the tribes of the earth will mourn when Jesus appears, which is a really like sobering thing to think about. Why would they mourn? And I think it's because very, like the, when Jesus appears, the jig is up for evil. Like it's over. We can't just like do whatever we want, trash the world, trash each other, just like reject the Lord again and again and again. The jig is up. But we're invited to be those who Jesus' appearance 
is actually the beginning of the most joyful celebration anyone could ever experience. You know, the Bible speaks of it as like a wedding feast at the end of time. The wedding feast that all other wedding feasts are just a shadow of, a time of great celebration. And so it's important to remember as we're talking about suffering here, uh, we're, we're talking about that specifically. That's a focus of our passage today. We're zooming in on it, but like zoom out. Don't lose sight of the overall message, one of the overall messages of this book and just of the Christian life in general, and that's rejoice. Rejoice because you belong to Jesus, because he's coming back. Any hardship we experience, any persecution, suffering, even like martyrdom, that is just a drop in the sea of eternal joy, the eternal joy of knowing and being accepted by the God of the universe who loves you. So don't be surprised if you experience suffering, but celebrate that you belong to God. Remember the big picture. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And I like to think of this verse in many ways as kind of like recapitulating all the themes we've been talking about today, that we will suffer as Christians, but when we do, we get to entrust our souls. And think of that word, entrust. It's like giving something uh, precious to somebody, knowing that they're going to take care of it. Entrust our souls to a faithful creator. That's the creator, the one who made everything, the one who made our souls, the one who made us while doing good. So remember whose story this is. Remember who's in charge. You know, I think in many ways, we like to think of ourselves as the authors of our own destiny. And of course, in some sense, we are responsible for our own choices, for our own lives. But ultimately, we are not the authors of this grand story we live in. There is an ultimate author. Remember who he is. He is good, and he loves you. Ultimate control is an illusion, but he has ultimate control, and he loves you. Uh, So the other day I was driving uh, and I was listening to some Motown, uh, specifically Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, who, man, those like, those duets are so sweet, so sweet. Uh, And I started tearing up, which is not that uncommon occurrence to me. I've noticed that like, like, if if, if you know me, I tend to cry like pretty easily in movies and music. Like even like, man, I was watching the, I remember once seeing the trailer for Cinderella Man, a movie I have like no interest whatsoever in ever seeing, and started tearing up and thinking like, why am I? Why am I crying? I don't want to see this film. <laughs> um, but uh, I was just thinking about the way that love songs, like pop love songs, it's so interesting to me that oftentimes they're extolling a love that is greater than the possibility of any human being to actually deliver. They're almost like secularized versions of, lo- of worship songs. They're filled with all this praise for like, a trans- a, like this transcendent, transcendent love. This transcendent love. And while I was listening the other day, I had one of those glimpses, glimpses of shock that just kind of suddenly hit me uh, from time to time. And suddenly it was like I saw the gospel afresh, just like the shocking reality that God so loves people that he became a human being and suffered at the hands of his own creatures. Like his own creatures came and killed him, killed him while he was trying to save them. And that was the whole point. He was saving them. And it's just like we can kind of become used to Christianity and images of like, yeah, I know Jesus is God and he died for me, like, but like, you kind of, you just like zoom out and think about it. That is wild. That is mind boggling. Like ever fresh, ever like startlingly beautiful when you really see it. Remember God's character. Remember the shock of the gospel. He loves you so much he died for you. For you sitting there in your seat, listening to me right now, he knows everything you've ever done, everything you are doing, everything you will do. And he says he loves you. He says, come unto me. If you don't know him already, come unto him. He's like, his arms are wide open. 
Like everything that could stop you from coming to him, he's dealt with it. All you have to do is like come to him, just surrender to him. It's like, uh, you know, it's like the image of like a dad calling their kid to jump. And the kid's got to jump like to get into the father's arms, but the father's going to grab them and take care of them and love them. He's calling that to you. Jesus prayed for the people who were killing him as they were killing him. That is wild. And Jesus exemplifies what we're called to when suffering. He suffered and he entrusted himself to a righteous father. Earlier in 1 Peter, he said, when he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And it's so interesting, like, considering everything we're called to here, all it's talking about here, that Peter's saying, do this, because of the reality of the gospel, do this, we're like called into that. Those are all things that Jesus has already done. Those are things he has already done. He, and we'll kind of just zoom through it right now, Jesus was self-controlled and sober-minded. Jesus loved people earnestly. Jesus showed hospitality. He showed cosmic hospitality, the hospitality of like invitation into the kingdom of heaven and eternal life. And I think even of just the ways that he like fed people, you know, you think of the story of the fishes and loaves, but also uh, in his resurrection, there's this one scene, I love it so much, just where the uh, disciples come in from, from fishing and Jesus had like prepared them a little meal of fish. Maybe it wasn't a little meal. He's prepared them a meal of fish. Jesus showed hospitality. Jesus used his gifts to serve us. Jesus spoke the oracles of God. Jesus served by the strength God supplies. Jesus suffered for the joy that was set before him. Jesus was unashamed, and Jesus trusted his Father while doing good. And he did all these things, and he invites us. He gives us that identity. We're called to live out of that identity that he's already accomplished. This is not a list of things you should do to earn God's love. It's God loves you. He's giving you this identity. So live out of that. Suffer for him. Love one another. Show hospitality. Serve and speak the oracles of God. Keep our eyes on our hope because of the identity he invites you in. So now, how do we respond? How do we live as we wait for, like it says, the end of all things, for our good king to come back? Call to love one another. We're called to be prepared to suffer for him. We're called to repent of sin. We're called to remember the story we're a part of. We're called to invite people into that story, to share that good news. Jesus actually gave us a specific job to do. In uh, the end of Matthew, he says we're supposed to tell people of him, to teach them to obey him, to obey what he commanded us. We're inviting them in to the kingdom. And if you're hearing this and you haven't given your life to Jesus, like, if you haven't accepted that forgiveness and favor he offers, you can do so. You can reach out and be welcomed into the greatest love story that you could ever experience. Perhaps you're sitting here and as a Christian and you kind of are realizing there's like a particular area of your life where you're struggling to believe that God actually sees and cares for you or where you're struggling to submit your story or a specific part of your story to his story or to let go of something. Now, we all need one another, and we need his spirit to remind us of that story we're a part of, and we can lean on one another. So we're going to have a time of musical worship. Uh, we're going to sing songs to our good king to celebrate and enjoy him. And during that time, like, maybe like, reach out to somebody, a friend, somebody in your community group, ask for prayer, share what you're struggling with. We're going to have people, uh, prayer team is going to be in the prayer nook over there and over here right through these doors. You can get prayer. You don't even have to say what you need prayer for. I mean, I encourage you to say, like, say, say what's, what's on your heart. Actually give the details. But also, you can just say, I need prayer. Like, it's very low pressure. But get prayer. Share with other people. Talk to the Lord about it. You know, communion. Um, 
communion is an opportunity to just like get real with the Lord, to take the elements with reverence if you're a Christian. Um, Jesus said this is his body of the bread to take it and do that in remembrance of him. And then he said that of the wine that this is the, the grape juice here. He says that's the new covenant in his blood to take in that, to do that in remembrance of him. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then there's also uh, offering boxes here. So we give uh, as a result in like response to his generosity because he has given us everything. Very glad to be with you guys. I'm going to pray now. The worship team's going to come up. Grateful to be here. Lord, I just want to thank you for your goodness, for your kindness, for your presence. Thank you that you came and paid the price for all of us, Lord. You love us, Lord. And just, I just want to specifically just, Holy Spirit, for people who are listening, perhaps there's a particular area of their lives where they are hurting, they are suffering, or where they are holding on to something that they know is not good for them, is not your way, but it just feels so hard to open those hands and let go. Lord, I just invite you in. Show us the freedom that you desire us to live in, the great love you have for us, Lord. Lord, we just pray that our church, we be a church where we support one another in the midst of hardship, where we keep our eyes fixed on you, where we love our city, Lord. You love this city. Just thank you for your goodness. Just praise you for how kind you are and for what you've done. And thank you that we look forward, no matter what we're going to and through in life, we look forward to a great hope, a great future, Lord. Like Josh says, the best is yet to come, and that is true. That is true for all of us who believe in you. The best is yet to come, and that's an invitation to all. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheopedx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.